Welcome. If you could please find your seats. My name is Colleen, and the Old Testament reading is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 through 5 and 9. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Mary. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 27, verses 19 to 20. On the third day, they picked up the ship's gear and hurled it into the sea. When neither the sun nor the moon appeared for many days, and the raging storm continued to pound us, all hope of our being saved from this peril faded. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Lore. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The Gospel of the Lord. (laughs) You better preach, Laura. You better preach. Well, remain standing, church, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, come. Shake us up. Confront us with your word. Challenge us. Change us. Conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Make us the people that you've called us to be. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome home, New Life Downtown. (laughs) It's been a great morning. I'm curious how many of you have never been to a New Life Downtown service at Palmer High School. Yeah, look at that. Welcome them. That's tremendous. It's tremendous on a number of levels. One, because you joined us during the pandemic. I think that's what that means. And secondly, it's tremendous because you came here, the oldest high school in Colorado Springs. It's great. I do think the chairs squeak a little bit less. I think there's someone went around with WD-40. Also, I don't know if you noticed, but this is not our doing. Uh, There's a school play that's about to go on. And if you know life at Palmer, then you know that twice a year there's a school play. Uh, None were were more memorable than the one year that they were doing uh, The Man from La Mancha around Easter time. And so there literally was a cave on stage. It was awesome. I did not come out of it. Neither did anyone acting as Jesus. But it was very, very exciting I have a sense this morning as I've been praying and anticipating and looking forward to this day that the charge from the Lord to us is that this is not a return to normal. I don't want the surroundings to fool you to think that you can breathe a sigh of relief and like, ah, it's over. 
In one sense, it is a relief, and it is special, and it is good to be here. We were together on Thursday night with all of the people who serve at every congregation around New Life Church, and I said to the the team that was there, I said, people sometimes wonder, when are we going to go back to, and when are we going to return to, and when will we go back to this or this or this? And I just have this sense in my spirit that we are not going back to anything. We are going forward to what God is doing here and now. And that doesn't mean we don't preserve what makes us who we are. That doesn't mean we don't hang on to important pieces of our identity. All of that is true. But there is a now mission for the church. There is a now job for the church. There is an assignment for the church. The church is not called to all of a sudden occupy a place and say, that's pretty good, let's just hang out here for a while. The church is ever and always advancing and taking new ground. So don't let a familiar place fool you into thinking that we're all good now. This is not a return to business as usual, Amen? amen? And the truth is, the world is not the way the world was. Some of you are going back to rhythms that feel a little bit normal with work. Maybe you're starting to travel a little bit again and there's school stuff and there's work stuff and you're like, it kind of feels more normal-ish. And we all hate that phrase, new normal, so I won't use it other than what I just said. (laughs) But the pandemic is in many ways, it was in many ways, has been in many ways, the instigator of some changes that are not going away. And some of you, I've talked to you in your business uh, lives and you've said, yeah, actually our, our corporation, these big corporations are having major discussions about what we're going to do with buildings. Like, are, is everybody coming back? We don't know. Maybe 20% of the workforce is going to show up in the building and the other percentage is going to, you know, work from home or work for wherever. Some of you, some people that you know, or maybe you yourself, or you're watching online, you moved cities because you realized I can work from anywhere. So why not Colorado Springs? Amen. Welcome. Bring it. So the pandemic instigated changes that there's no reversing. There's also a sense in which the pandemic accelerated changes that were already in progress. Shifts, trends. And then in other ways, it was like a great revealer. Last year, about a year ago, we did a series at New Life Church on the book of Revelation. And it it went against the way some people thought of looking at the book. But the book of Revelation describes itself as an apocalypse. Which doesn't mean end of the world. It means an unveiling. And the book of Revelation, yes, it's an unveiling of who Jesus is, but it's also an unveiling of, oh, I didn't realize all that was going on over there. And if we're honest, some of us are like, yeah, no kidding, I found out some things about y'all, you know. I discovered some things, that it unveiled some things. I want to, Lord, help that situation. Whatever's going on there with those trucks, help them, Lord. That's what being an, an urban church means, doesn't it? Downtown, you're going to hear sirens. I want us this morning to turn to Acts 27. And I want to talk to you about what to do when the sky goes dark. What kind of church are you going to be, are we going to be when the sky goes dark? Acts 27 tells the story of Paul on a prison ship. And it's an interesting thing because Acts, you may know this, is Luke's volume 2. So Luke writes his volume 1 is the gospel, the story of Jesus. And the book of Acts in many ways parallels some key events in his volume 1. So where volume one, the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, has a story of Jesus standing up in Luke 4 and saying, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then his ministry begins. 
That's paralleled in Acts 2 when the church gets anointed by the Holy Spirit and the church is born and the, the sick begin to be healed and the hungry begin to be fed and you see these parallels. But what's important for us to recognize is the book of Acts is not the church retracing the steps of Jesus. It's the church extending the mission of Jesus into new places with new people. And we have to catch that because otherwise we think, oh, well, isn't the church's job just to rehearse the life of Christ and let's just retread the same ground? What Luke wants us to see is there's similarities and there's differences because the mission of God by the power of the Holy Spirit is expanding, is moving outward into new places. And what you see at the end of the book of Acts is a very different kind of ending to his gospel. His gospel ends with Jesus talking to disillusioned disciples, Luke 24. But his volume 2 ends with Paul on a prison ship, sailing roughly toward Rome. And you recognize we're a long way from Kansas. We're not anywhere near the place where this story began. We're not, the, the goal is not to, can't we just get back to Jerusalem? The goal is not to, can't we just get back to sort of the temple? Can't we just do the holy things again and the religious things again? The goal of the Holy Spirit's work on earth is to blow it outwards and to push us outward, to expand it beyond, beyond, beyond. So Jesus is talking to disillusioned disciples at the end of volume one, but volume two, Paul's talking to disinterested pagans. People who are like, we don't even care about you. Look at this with me, verse 9. Much time had been lost and the voyage was now dangerous since the day of reconciliation had already passed. And Paul warned them, men, I see that our voyage will suffer damage and great loss, not only for the cargo and the ship, but also for our lives. But the centurion was persuaded more by the ship's pilots and captain than by Paul's advice. This is the verse I want you to pay attention to. The centurion, this Roman soldier, is more persuaded by the ship's pilot and captain than by Paul's advice. It's interesting. You know, here we are, 2,000 years later, secular historians have said there is probably no more influential thinker in the shaping of Western civilizations than Paul. More than Socrates, more than Plato, more than any other Enlightenment rationalist. It's Paul who laid the time bomb for all of the things that we take for granted in our world today, from human rights to dignity to all of this stuff, the, 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 the um, importance of an individual's conscience. And here's Paul on a prison ship, and the centurion's like, yeah, that's cute, Paul, but nah. Paul's like, dude, I'm a, I, I like saw Jesus in a vision. He's like, Who? I'm going to write letters that will be two-thirds of the scriptures that will be the most, the best-selling book of all time. I don't care, man. I've got ideas. I've got wisdom. And the centurion is more persuaded by the ship's pilot and captain than by Paul's advice. It It sounds to me like our world today. The people who've got the message of hope that the world needs has found a world that's less interested than ever in hearing it. Now, I... Hear me carefully. This is not a where are the good old days kind of talk. This is not a bring back the 50s. Please, no. This is the church learning to pay attention to what is changing in the world around us so that the mission of God changes with it, moves with it. And what we recognize when we see in the world around us is that 
This is not the age where Christians are considered respectable or trustworthy voices anymore. There was a day when maybe a pastor said this or that and people would tune in and listen. There was even a day not that long ago where America was proud to say we have America's pastor, Billy Graham. We live in a world today where actually people don't want to hear from pastors. I did a some research and partnering with Barna last fall that will come out next year. And one of the questions we asked, it's a risky one for pastors to ask. But was a, the question was, do you consider pastors a trustworthy source of wisdom? <laughs> 57% of U.S. adults said either yes, definitely, or yes, somewhat. Like a mediocre yes, 57% of U.S. adults. Of Christians, 71% said yes, somewhat, or yes, definitely. That means probably today, there's like a third of you, 29% of you, that are like, hmm, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> there's a third of you that are listening or watching that you're like, we'll see about that, Mr. Talker guy. Not sure. Of non-Christians, only 22%. Consider pastors a credible voice. 78% don't. That means the age of saying, will you come to church with me? My pastor is really great about some wisdom about life. And your friend's going to be like, no, man. Like, that's the last person I want to hear about life from. If you thought that our way of reaching Colorado Springs was to get them to church, to hear a person talking from stage, that ain't it. There's 78% of the people who are like, I don't, I don't think they're a trustworthy voice on anything. Not only is there a decline in credibility, but there's a rise in what you might call plurality. Just a lot of different kinds of voices. The philosopher Charles Taylor calls it a cross-pressured world. Forces are moving in opposite directions. James K. A. Smith says, believers are tempted to doubt. You're like, yeah, no kidding. And doubters are tempted to believe. I was on a flight recently, and I walked in to my middle seat because, you know, that's how I roll. And, um, and there's this lady who's got the window seat, this sweet older lady, and she's, you know, doing some crosswords. And, and you know, she started talking to me before I get my headphones on. That's the way I roll. <laughs> and uh, we're chatting, and she's, you know, striking up a conversation. And then comes the question, so what do you do? So here we go. I said, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And she goes, I knew it. <laughs> she goes, you, you, you just have the look. At this moment, I'm not sure yet if it's a compliment or, you know. So I go, okay, you know, we're, we're chatting. And I, I look over, she's doing a Bible crossword puzzle. I thought, oh, this is going to be great, you know. And I've got my book out. And uh, she's like, oh, what are you reading? I'm like, well, it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's, a, it's about how we got to this age where people think that we can define every detail of our identity and we expect the culture to affirm it and the machinery of politics to sustain it. And she goes, well, that's pretty important for our dad. Yeah, you know, we, and then I get my headphones in. But just before I do, I glance over and the dude on my left, because remember, middle seat, the dude on my left is scrolling, let's just say, really inappropriate pictures on Instagram. And he's just like, you know, and I'm looking, I got Bible crossword granny over here and I've got dude looking at pictures that he shouldn't be looking at alone, let alone on an airplane. And I'm like, that's cross pressured. 
There's the cross-pressured world. So we can't say it's like, oh, it's a secular. It's not quite right. Nor can we say that the same presumptions are there that were there before. Verse 18, we were so battered by the violent storm that the next day the men began throwing cargo overboard. On the third day, they picked up the ship's gear and hurled it into the sea. Now look at verse 20. When neither the sun nor the moon appeared for many days... And the raging storm continued to pound us. All hope of our being saved from this peril faded. Hope faded when the lights were gone. Hope faded when the sky went dark. One of the metaphors for our age is a world that's living under a closed roof. If you've ever been to a sporting event where the stadium has a retractable roof, those are the moments when they close the roof and nobody's saying, aren't the stars lovely tonight? Because nobody cares. What they came was to see the game. And so the fact that the stars are gone or the sky is dark really doesn't bother anyone anymore. And it's an apt metaphor for our day because maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there was a swell of sort of militant atheism. The Dawkins, the Hitchens, the whatever. God is not great. All of that kind of stuff. In our day today, it's not militant atheism. It's indifferent agnosticism. It's people who are like, I don't know. Do you believe in God? I don't know. Maybe. Who cares? I mean, like, what does it matter? The roof is closed. I just got to go about my life. When New Life Downtown began, we, Pastor Evan was reminding me of this last night. We, we, we met in the Carter Payne. It was a building down on South Weber, and an old AME church. Beautiful windows all along the sides, and the ceiling was painted. Not, not too dissimilar from here. But... We went in there a few days before our very first service in April of 2012 and all the lights that were coming in, the natural light that was coming in the windows and there was a prophetic word that, that day as we were praying that said this congregation is called to go and be the lights in downtown Colorado Springs. So for a few years that was like our email passwords, go and be the light. It's not anymore, don't worry. <laughs> but that became this phrase and our question this morning is how does the church... Shine when no one misses the light. How does the church shine when the sky goes dark and no one misses the light? And so quickly this morning, I want to share three things from this story with you. Jump with me to verse 21. For a long time, no one had eaten, and Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have complied with my instructions not to sail from Crete. Then we would have avoided this damage and loss. (laughs) This is Paul's way of saying, I told you so. Now I urge you to be encouraged. Not one of your lives will be lost. He starts speaking prophetically here. Not one of your lives will be lost, though we will lose the ship. Bad news. Good news, bad news. Verse 23, last night an angel from the God to whom I belong. Listen, I don't know what gods y'all are worshiping, Paul's saying. But the God to whom I belong sent an angel. The God whom I worship stood beside me, and the angel said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Indeed, God has also graciously given you everyone sailing with you. Be encouraged, men. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as he told me. However, we must run aground on some island. The first thing I want us to notice from this text is this. Stay attentive to the Spirit. Stay attentive to the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. Paul had maybe one of the most dramatic spiritual experiences in all of Christian history. I mean, seriously, like, like we've all had visions, or maybe not all. We've had some worship moments where, like, oh, God spoke to me. But I mean, like, Paul had the risen Jesus knock him off a horse 
and give him a call. You're like, hey, that's, that's pretty great. And if you were Paul, if I was Paul, I might have been living off of that experience. And I might have said, that was great. Back in 47, Jesus saved me. Like AD 47, anyway. Probably earlier than that, 37. Or for some of us, oh, I remember, Glenn, I was around. Last week I mentioned the Jesus movement. I was there in the 60s baptizing people. It's awesome. But what Paul refuses to do is to camp out on one experience with the Holy Spirit. I'm not telling you to chase experiences, but I am telling you to stay attentive to the Holy Spirit. Stay attentive to, stay leaned in. If God is a speaking God, and he is, the question is, will we be a listening church? If God is a speaking God, will we be a listening church? See, here's Paul on the ship in a storm. Nobody's listening to him. If ever anyone had an excuse to say, you know what, I'm just going to choose the option where I go quiet. He could have chosen that option. But Paul says, I'm not on this ship so I can go quiet. I'm on this ship so I can hear from God. My question for you is wherever you are in your workplaces or in your neighborhoods and your schools and your glen, it is so dark out there in the world. I, I, I get it. It is so dark. But you're still there, correct? Like you're still there, right? I'm still here. We're still here. We're right here in Colorado Springs. So, so will we listen? God, what are you saying? And the world might live like it's under a dome, but we can poke cracks in the canopy. The world might live like the heavens are closed, but we can say there's still a God who speaks. There's still a God who calls to us. It's one of the reasons why our conviction here at New Life Downtown and at New Life Church is that we are not going to turn down the one thing that you can find in church that you can't find anywhere else. It's the presence and the power of God. We want to be attentive and aware. There's people coming over to translate. We want to make sure everyone feels welcome. But imagine, imagine if tonight, you know, you're helping with trick-or-treat or something and you break your arm and you end up going to the ER, God forbid. But imagine if you go to the ER and you're like, oh, man, I think I really hurt myself. And you're like, oh, excuse me, nurse, I need some help. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, would you like a vanilla latte? So, I'm sorry, what? No, I need someone to talk. Like my arm. It's not supposed to bend that way. And they're like, I know, but we just got this new espresso machine. It's incredible. And actually, we have alternate milks now. <laughs> Almond, oat, soy. What, what do you want? Dude, I'm not going to come for the coffee. They said, well, okay, fine, but we do have leather couches. We've got a jazz quartet. Just be comfortable here. I'm like, I just need a splint or something. I believe in churches being hospitable. I believe in churches being welcoming. I believe in churches being all of that stuff. But you will never find here a cute talk and some nice music and then a God bless you. What you will find Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is the presence and the power of God because we are not here for the coffee or the TED Talks or the life hacks or the tips. We're here for Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's what we're here for. And that's something Paul understood even on this prison ship. The story goes on, verse 30. The sailors tried to abandon the ship by lowering the lifeboat into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower the anchors. Catch this picture here. They're all like working over the edge of the, what are you doing? Oh, we're just dropping anchors. I mean lifeboats. Trying to escape. Pretending that they were going to lower anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless they stay in the ship, you can't be saved. 
from peril. This is an echo, I think, of an earlier verse in the book of Acts where it says in Acts 4, I think, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved except for Jesus. And now at the very end of the book of Acts, Paul's saying, uh, you want to be saved from this disaster? There's a metaphor here. You got to cut off all other options. You got to cut off all other boats. And so he says, and then the soldiers cut the ropes to the lifeboat and let it drift away. All the other ropes and all the other boats are gone. What it says to me and what it says to me for us is that we've got to challenge the cultural lie. There are several cultural lies at work that say, here's the lifeboat that you need. Here's the way out of this. Here's your pathway to hope. Here's what rescue looks like. You take care of yourself first or you be selfish or you turn inward or you do this or you do that. But I think one of the dominant cultural lies is the lie that we can save ourselves. The lie that we can problem solve this. That we can MacGyver our way out of this mess. There's an academic version of this. If I just learn to think correctly, we will be saved. There's a moralist version of this. If I just become a nicer person, if we were just nicer to each other on Facebook, then we would be saved. There's a political version of this. If we could just elect the right people, then we would be saved. There's a science and technology version of this. If we could just invent that one last thing, then as a, ra a human race, we would be saved. There's a market economics version of this. If I could just make more, earn more, spend more, consume more, afford more, then we will be saved. There's a religious version of it. If I fasted more, prayed more, read my Bible more, served more, then I would be saved. Paul says the The gospel doesn't work like that. The gospel requires you to cut off all the ropes to all the other boats. Until you say, Jesus, all I have is you. All I have is you. I, 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 that doesn't mean we don't get to work. That doesn't mean we don't do practical things to improve society. But the answer is Jesus. This is why my imagination is so captured by this 50th anniversary of the Jesus movement. I know, I mean, Micah, you got the long hair already. You're ready, man. I don't think I can pull it off. But when I think about that era, when I think about that day, and I think about the turmoil of racial tensions and political upheaval and all of the unrest, how do you solve all of those things? I don't know how you solve all of those things, but I do know that in the midst of it, we can be Jesus people. We can be people that say, cut off all the ropes to all the other boats because there's only one way to be saved. One of the other cultural lies is the lie that life under the sun, under this dome, is enough. Some years ago, we did a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. You heard the Old Testament reading this morning, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. One of the key moments in your conversations with friends and coworkers is going to be when they hit up against the emptiness of it all. It's like the writer, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, it's like he's saying, go ahead and get in one of those boats. See how you do in this storm. Paddling the boat of your career. Paddling the boat of your own ambition. Paddling the boat of your whatever. Just go, go, go ahead. See how, that, how far that'll take you. And it makes me think of that scene in the Truman Show movie years ago where Jim Carrey gets in the boat and all of a sudden he runs smack into the wall because the whole thing's a set. You remember this? 
Those are Ecclesiastes moments for people. We're like, no, I don't need religion. I don't need God. I don't need church. I've got my little boat. Like, okay, call me when you hit a wall. Call me when that boat goes right there. And this is what Paul is saying. There's going to come a point where this doesn't work anymore. We believe in good things, but we believe that good things all have limits. Because they're not God. They're not the only way to be saved. The last piece of this is in verse 33. It says, just before daybreak, Paul urged everyone to eat. He said, this is the 14th day you've lived in suspense and you've not even had a bite to eat. Two weeks, not really eating. I urge you to take some food. Your health depends on it. None of you will lose a single hair from his head. And then it says, after he said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all, and then broke it and began to eat and everyone was encouraged and took some food there's a formula here that Luke the consummate storyteller uses the formula you may have heard these three words before is blessed broken given when we started New Life Downtown those words became important to us and we said it's not only what happens at the table but it's how we make sense of our life in Christ and our life as the people of God in the world Blessed, broken, given. Luke is the one who uses this phrase four times. Three times in his gospel and one time in the book of Acts. Luke 9, Jesus is feeding the 5,000. He takes bread, he blesses it, breaks it and gives it. Luke 22, at Passover, he takes the bread, he blesses it, breaks it and gives it. Luke 24, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he blesses it, breaks it and gives it. And here now, Acts 27, Paul takes bread, blesses it, breaks it and gives it. But I want you to notice a couple things. In two of the stories, the word for blessed is just the word blessed. He blessed it. But in one of the stories in Luke's gospel, he uses a different word. The story of Jesus at Passover, Luke uses the Greek word eucharisteo. Eucharisteo. Christians, would it means to give thanks, and Christians would use that word, eucharist, to talk about the Lord's table. And to say, oh, this is what we do in remembrance of Christ. But Luke is giving us a clue. Because here now at the end of the book of Acts, he doesn't use a generic word for blessed. He uses a a word that would become a holy word. He uses Eucharisteo. Now stop for a moment and think about this. Jesus is at Passover. Eucharisteo. Doing Eucharist. But Paul is on a pagan prison ship, acting eucharistically. I think what Luke is trying to say to us is, don't for a second believe that the grace of God is confined to religious spaces. Don't for a second believe that Eucharist only belongs when we have it all proper and we've got some dude in robes and a stole. I've got that in my closet. Uh, don't, be, don't for a second believe that that's just for the moments where we're churchy and everything's good. You need to know that the mission of God is that the people of God come and we do gather in sacred places and we do worship in holy places and then we go in unholy places, quote unquote, and offer that same Eucharistic hospitality in the world. That's what we are to do. And so the third and final thing we see from this story is we are called to testify to the grace of God. 
Here's Paul on the ship, and he's like, I don't know which God or gods you believe in. I don't know who you think brought you this bread, but I'm here to tell you that this bread came from the king of heaven. This bread came from my father. This bread came from the maker of heaven and earth, so I'm going to give him thanks for it, and then I'm going to give it to you. This morning I was talking with Amber Ayers, and Amber posted this on her Facebook page last or a couple days ago. Earlier in the week, Amber was walking around downtown and some young girls put their phone right in front of her face. And it was an app, Google Translate, that had translated from Persian to English and it said, can you help us get home? And she starts this conversation with them and the whole entire conversation is going back and forth with Google Translate. Persian to English, English to Persian. Come to find out they're a family of refugees from Afghanistan. They end up inviting them to their home on Thursday nights just to offer them hospitality. That is Eucharistic hospitality at work in the world. Amen. That's saying the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. It's the grace of God that you ran into me on the street and shoved a phone in my face. This is the gift of God given for you. Sometimes I'll sit across a coffee table with people and someone's a, sometimes it's, it's a doctor who's sharing with me, Glenn, this is so impossible in my industry because the, the pressures from administration is to over-recommend procedures and surgeries. I know some of you know this. And he's like, I'm trying to do work in a different way and my job is to testify to the grace of God and to say, and you doing that right there, that's the grace of God in your life. That's holy. You doing holy work, that's the grace of God. Spoke with a business person who's in the middle of a lawsuit and this other person is trying to take him to the cleaners in an unjust way. And he's like, I want so bad to retaliate this way and this way. I'm going to stand my ground, but I want to do it in a different spirit. And I said, there it is. There's the grace of God. There is the gift of God given for you, the people of God. All around us is a world that thinks that they're God-forsaken and the mission of the church is to go into all the world and to say, he never left you. He's never forsaken you. Behold, the gifts of God given to you, the world. Testify to the grace of God. Testify to the grace of God. A few weeks ago, I met a man at a conference. He said, you don't know me. He said, I attended New Life downtown for a year. He said, I sat in the back. He said, I cried every week. He said, it wasn't your sermons that touched me. I said, thank you. Yeah, just, you know, pastors, we get these compliments that hurt sometimes. You know. <laughs> I, it was fine. He said, no, it wasn't that. He said, it was, just, you know, it was everything. It was the songs we would sing. It was the prayers we would pray. The creeds we'd confess. I came every week. I was going through the hardest time of my life. It was the hardest year of my life. And I just sat in the back and cried. Testified to the grace of God. This is not a God-forsaken world. As the songwriter said, this is my Father's world. And you're like, well, Glenn, I I don't know, maybe maybe that's your job. Maybe that's Jason's job. Maybe that's someone else's job. Can I really do that? Listen, Paul is a prisoner on a pagan ship, and he acts like a priest. That's what the mission of God looks like. It looks like doctors and lawyers and school teachers and, and parents and caregivers acting like priests wherever we are, testifying to the grace of God. 
And the option is, if we don't, if we reserve Eucharistic actions for when we can get the words right and the colors right and the setting right and the ambiance right, if we wait for that, listen, the mission of God will die with us. But the only way the mission of God continues outward into the world is when we say, we come to church, we say, thank you, Lord, for the gifts of God given for us, the people of God. And now we go into the world and say, there it is. There's the gift of God. 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 That's what we're called to do.